Hi, this is Bernie Marsden, formerly of Whitesnake and uh, a few other bands over the years, and you are listening to the Classic Rock and Metal Podcast. Hi, this is Eric Bloom of Blue Oyster Cult. You're listening to the Classic Rock and Metal Podcast. This is the Classic Rock and Metal Podcast, featuring all your favorite bands from the 70s and 80s. The old stuff, the new stuff, the news, interviews, everything you need for your hard rock and metal fix. Right here, right now. Hello, hello, former and current headbangers, and welcome to another edition of your very own classic rock and metal podcast. I'm Ollie Barnes, and I'm, of course, delighted, honoured, thrilled, ecstatic, and above all, grateful that you've taken the time to listen to this humble little show. I'll be delving into the golden years of what we used to call heavy metal, now rechristened classic rock, catching you up with some of the bands and artists from the 70s and 80s who are still doing what they love doing and what we love listening to. Exclusive new interviews as always, and first up we've blues rock stalwart Bernie Marsden, who after helping Whitesnake become one of the biggest bands in the world was at first a little down, but then not even remotely bothered about being absent from their latter 80s hair metal rebirth. It was a band that had the same name as a group I was in, but it was nothing like the band I was in. And it just happened to record one of my songs that went super crazy and sold millions. So I'll ever be associated with it, but um, it's been great to me. Next up is someone you may not have heard of, but have almost certainly heard. Jean Beauvoir has worked with the Ramones, Little Stephen, Kiss and plenty of others, but it was his time with the plasmatics in the 70s that makes the best stories. They tried to arrest Wendy for simulated masturbation with a sledgehammer, and one of the police officers tried to touch her breast. She freaked out and she slapped him. Next thing you know, the guy punches her. And it starts an all-out fight backstage. And they were beating us up, they had us on the floor, handcuffing us, and they took us to jail. And finally, Eric Bloom from true rock metal legends Blue Oyster Cult talks about Spinal Tap, Kiss, and still having to play Don't Fear the Reaper every night. It's expected. I mean, I will pay $150 to go see The Who play. And they better damn well play Bob O'Reilly, you know, and I expect it. And I appreciate it if they play some deep tracks, because I'm a Who fan, but I want, you know, I want to hear the hits. But before we get into all that, here's a little gem from a way back for fans of the glossy version of heavy rock from our cousins across the pond. The web's favorite classic rock podcast series, giving you all your favorite bands every month. Rejoin the family with the classic rock and metal podcast at classicrockpodcast.com. Yeah. 
that was, of course, Wanted Man by Rat from their debut full-length album, Out of the Cellar, released in 1984 to huge fanfare worldwide. The album spawned three singles, of which that was the least successful, actually being outdone by Back For More and the all-conquering Round and Round. The album ultimately went triple platinum in the US and helped Rat become one of the foremost US metal acts of the 80s. They've been a bit quiet of late, though, with the last album, Infestation, coming out in 2010, and no signs of anything happening rat-wise in 2015. Before we get going, I just want to mention the recent relaunch of our classic rock and metal podcast, Next Generation Shows, which feature newer artists following in the footsteps of the ones from back in the day. It's now a weekly show, featuring one artist per show, with an exclusive interview and a couple of tracks to give you a taste of what they're all about. They get released on the same feed as this show, so if you're a subscriber, you'll get them automatically. If not, you can always find them at classicrockpodcast.com or on iTunes, Podomatic or Spreaker. Also, we're very proud to be one of the three finalists for the Best Music Podcast in the UK Podcasting Awards. And if I'm honest, I think we should win it, if only because we play the best kind of music. But I need you to spend 30 seconds and cast your vote, if you would, please. A huge number of people nominated us, but now it's down to the voting proper. So please, please, please help strike a blow for rock and metal, as well as giving me something shiny for the mantelpiece and do a couple of clicks for us. The easiest way is to go to classicrockpodcast.com and follow the link from the homepage and if we win I'll buy everyone a drink at the next Led Zeppelin show. Bernie Marsden is best known for his stint with Whitesnake from the band's formation in 1978 through to 1983, but he's also played with UFO, Alaska and in various projects with former Deep Purple and Whitesnake personnel. He's also produced a number of solo records, most recently Shine in 2014, which, as we'll hear, features contributions from blues rocker Joe Bonamassa, as well as his old partner in crime, David Coverdale. As we started talking about his brief stint with UFO, the conversation drifted towards the Scorpions, who'd played at the same festival we were attending the night before, and as I learned, are old friends of Bernie's. We were talking about the Scorpions last night, and uh, I came down yesterday purely, really, to, to see the guys. Rudolf and Klaus and I, we go back to 1972, certainly the end of 72 or the very early part of 73, when the Scorpions opened up for UFO when I was playing with them. And uh, we became pretty close then, and we've remained, obviously they've become enormous and uh, you know very, very successful. And we all went on to do different things, and of course UFO are still knocking around, I believe. Um, but it was really nice to hook up with them last night because uh, Klaus didn't know I was here. I went and knocked on the dressing room door and uh, uh, he was quite surprised. Yeah, Rudolph I saw in the catering, so, but, uh, so he knew I was around, but Klaus didn't. It was nice. And then I, I saw about, I think, at least half their set last night before I had to leave and uh, they were bang on form, really good. Yeah, they were. I mean, I don't want to dwell too much on them, but yeah. I didn't get a chance to chat to them yesterday. They've got no signs of, of, of stopping, have they? No, and they were telling me all about uh, uh, plans for next year are pretty much full up. They were talking about China, Brazil and stuff like that. So, you know, the machine just keeps rolling and good luck to them. Good luck to them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want, how, so the UFO, how long, forgive my lack of knowledge here, how long are you with UFO? About 20 minutes. Uh, about, about nine months. About nine months. It was my first pro gig and uh, it was a baptism of fire really. I. Um, I, I sort of got the gig and I took the gig because they were managed and handled by a company called Chrysalis who were the very young darlings of the, the rock business at the time 
And I thought, well, that's great. They're managed. They have agency. They have a record deal. And all three in one. And that was the that's the good side of the bad side. I joined a band that I should never have joined. And uh, they probably hired a guitar player they should never have hired as well. But we got on okay at first, but it disintegrated quite. You know, I mean, I'm blues based, always have been, and I tried to, you know, force my will in a little bit. We we were doing a couple of things that I pushed in, more or less insisted on doing, and they seemed to enjoy. We did a couple of Janis Joplin songs, I remember, but it was never really going to be a long term thing. And uh, the fact that it lasted nine months was probably three months more than I expected. And uh, but I was responsible really for Michael Schenker becoming part of UFI because. He was playing with the Scorpions, and I just went and saw him playing. He was playing so good, he, he, you know. He was he was he was the deal. He was the finished article when he was 19 or something. I mean, I was only 21. I think Michael be about 18 or 19. And I just went into. I said, "Look, the guy that you need in this band is standing on the stage now." Phil <laughs> Mark to this tell to this day. I still tell this story, but it is true. He said, "Well, we don't watch support groups." And uh, exactly yeah, like and I just. Uh, Thought well, that definitely confirms that I, this isn't the you know you know it's like you know what what are you going to do play with Greg Oldman you know when I'm when I'm 21 I say I'm not going to watch them you know he said we don't watch support groups and neither should you so I said well you should get this guy then I was really getting in a bit of a state over it and I thought well I didn't turn professional to have a nervous breakdown I thought I want to be you know enjoy myself so uh, I did fail to show up the only time ever very unprofessional but I just couldn't face going back to Germany for another six weeks I think it was and. Anyway, a couple of days later they flew me out, but by that time I knew Michael was going to be there and I knew that he knew at least half the set. And I knew that he'd cover for me, even though he didn't know at the time I knew he would. So it was my fault really, poor old Michael got all that grief for all those years with the UFO as well, so I'm responsible for that as well. Yeah. Very Machiavellian, yeah. well done. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I want to go right back to the Malice in Wonderland record, mm-hmm. if that's okay, which yeah. I've always loved, I've still got my vinyl copy of it. Not talked about that often, yeah. and, and really should Not be. Not much either. <laughs> well, we played the track a couple of months back, yeah. um, and got, you know, a lot of people were, were great and great to hear it. What are your recollections of the record? Well, it was a wonderful time for me, because after all the stuff, you know, with the UFO, then I joined a band called Wild Turkey, which was great, but that was kind of not falling apart, but it, it kind of run its course at the time, and I could see I wasn't going to step up that much, you know, career-wise. And then Cozy Powell uh, pinched me from them, and that was the first time I played with people of that stature, and uh, he was very, very special, Cozy. We could do a whole interview about Cozy, but because of that, after the Cozy Powell's Hammer thing finished, which we don't need to get into. But we had Don Airy, myself, Clive Shaman from the Beck Band on bass. It was just a bit special. Then I went into Babe Ruth after that, which was nice guys, good players, good, but it wasn't the same thing. So I got a bit frustrated. Then I got a call from Cozy to say, look, uh, John Lord's putting a band together, you know, and I've put your name up for it. And I said, well, I don't know anything about Deep Purple. <clears throat> he said, no, it's not Deep Purple. Deep Purple had broken up, which I think I did know. So I went for this audition eventually, because I didn't go down as this... Uh, this lady phoned me and said, "Oh, you do exist then." It was all very like, you know, this is deep, you know, this is the deep purple office. And I went, "Oh, all right." <laughs> so anyway, I got the gig. And of course, then I realised, you know, with Ian and John and Tony Ashton, bless him, you know, uh, this was going to be something very, very different. So we, we went off to Munich to to Musicland and we recorded the, the Malice album. And to this day, I think musically is one of the best things I've ever done. Working with John and Ian, at, you know, on a one-to-one basis. You know, really set me up for the next well ten years, really, and uh, 
and has ruined me ever since because you know you say well Pacey would have done it like this and the poor drummers ever since when you're saying I'm not Ian Pace you know I said yeah well yeah true you know that kind of thing writing songs and you've got people like that you know playing with you. you you know what they can do so you can more or less say well you know let's do this and Pacey will lay this down or John will be able to do this so that was a very special record the band did nothing uh, um, uh, career-wise uh, we played five shows recorded a second album that very really never saw the light of day I know that bits and pieces have come out since but uh, I've, I've still got a couple of tracks that uh, have never seen the light of day and um, it was a great experience but it all came to an end rather quickly and uh, I was then confronted with uh, what am I going to do now and uh, just happened that David Coverdale had come down and uh, he'd been down to meet John and Ian at the studio we got to know each other not very well but enough to say well if in London look me, look me up in London da, 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 da. and uh, next thing I saw him was in I saw him at the old rainbow and he said I'm putting a band together do you fancy Having some of that, he said. I hear you might be joining Wings. I said, Yeah, you, you, you hear right, but I hear nothing. I said, <laughs> That is a rumor. But uh, I, I had a call, and uh, it just never happened. But then I did have a bit of a dilemma because within two get-togethers, rehearsals of the embryonic White Snake, you know, I was what 25 or whatever. You know, what are you going to do? You want to play Mulligan Tile, or you want to play with a guy from Deep Purple? You know, it was there was, it was a no-brainer really. Yeah, I mean, you say that. Much as I love, you know, the Beatles, obviously the Beatles, without the Beatles I wouldn't play the guitar, but, you know, it wasn't a dilemma as such, it was uh, me going into a situation with guys of my own kind of ilk, really. Yeah, I mean, I think you say, they say the malice thing kind of ruins you musically, it didn't do too badly then moving on to... Uh... Well, it didn't ruin me, it, I mean, it made me, if anything, because when you're playing with those guys, you've got to step up to the level, yeah. and uh, they must feel that you can do it, else they wouldn't have hired you, and... You know, so confidence-wise, it was very good. But you know, I, and when I say it ruined me, it, it, it's difficult. After Whitesnake, for instance, I put a band together called Alaska, and through no fault of their own, I gave some of those guys terrible earache. You know, you know, you know, because I'd, I'd, been, I'd been used to playing with John Lord for yeah, yeah. nearly seven or eight years, and uh, and, and Ian. So, you know, it was going always going to be tough for me. And then I sort of lost interest in Alaska after about eighteen months. So, mm. lost interest in quite a few things at that period. <laughs> Well, we've got to talk about Whitesnake, obviously. I mean, it's a, it was a hugely productive period yeah. uh, for, for everybody yeah. associated with the band, but um, it, 
what was your favourite, um, I guess, record, I suppose, or period w with the band? I'm very fond of Ready and Willing, because uh, it was kind of a breakthrough record. That was when Ian came in, and we just knew, I think, by the time we were recording, uh, not that far from here, actually. And um, we just knew in the studio, I think, David and I, we needed, and, and, and Mickey, we knew we had material together that was strong and would last and would work on stage. And, with Ian in, as I say, we were, David obviously and I, we knew what to expect, and he delivered 101%, and uh, you know, Full Free Loving came out of that, and that's pretty special. have something. Trouble is the energy level on it is very so energy 100% direction 3% because it's like you know we're up and down you know we're Jeff Beck or we're something else and a blues band then we're a rock band then, then we're a soul band and it, it, but you know the energy level was fantastic you know but I think by the time we got to Ready and Willing that's probably and that was the first one that went gold and I suppose you know psychologically you think oh well you know that's the one I run for if I was moving house you know. Okay yeah. Nicely put. After you left, I guess one or two records after, they mm. went less bluesy and more heavy rock. Was, do you know, oh, was that a yeah. conscious decision, do you think? Well, I mean, I'd gone by then, you know, we'd sort of come to the end of the, after Saints and Sinners, and uh, David, we, we, we had a pretty lousy management deal, and uh, which is not unusual from the era that we all came from. And the only way David could really be in control of Whitesnake was, was to start again, really. And that's what he did. And I don't blame, I don't blame him. I, I mean, it was pretty, you know, I thought, hang on, we're one of the biggest bands in the world. Why, why, why are we breaking it up? But we might be one of the biggest bands in the world, but we were making no formal figures. Right. So, you know, I've written a book. Okay. It's in there. Jolly good. Uh, and so he went off to America as well. And so hence the... Uh, you know the changeover. I think I think you know it, it didn't bother me at all, really. Say so it bothered me that I wasn't playing in White Snake anymore. But you know it was like watching him go on. You know I could say well, and then when the new album came out, not not slide it in. I, I that that's kind of, to me that's a crossover record. Mm. But when '87 came out, I could listen to that album like it was Foreigner or Toto or whatever because it was it was a band that had the same name as a group I was in, but it was nothing like the band I was. And it just happened to record one of my songs that went super crazy and sold millions.
voices and songs of yesterday And I've made up my mind I ain't wasting no more time Here I go associated with it so you know and I'll probably play it today but um, it's been great to me yeah. you know and Dave and I we're, we're good now we're, we're fine the last three four years you know we've been hanging out I've been playing with them again and doing guest appearances which has been lovely you know? yeah we're going to talk about that on the, yeah. on the new record but yeah. I mean um, you jumped up on stage with them two or three years ago at the Sweden yeah. what was what brought that on and was it well, he called me. He just called me at the beginning of the year. Whatever that was, that 2012 was it or 11? 11. 11. Well, that was in the the summertime, and he called me. I think it was like January, February, and just said, hey, "I've got an idea." He said, "How'd you fancy playing with me at Sweden Rock?" And I said, "Well, I'll think about it." I said, "Yeah, for about a second. <laughs> and I just thought it was good. We we had bumped into each other, and we'd kind of uh, buried the hatchet because there was never any hatchets out. Really, it was. That was one of the, the disappointments about the end of the first White Snake. It was we didn't have a good row or a fight or anything. No, no, no. We just sort of went and walked away and went, "Oh, was that then?" Yeah. Mm. Oh, I see you. You know, I remember me and Ian Pace walking down the street saying, "See you then, mate." Yeah, that was it. Why don't we just didn't kick off and say, "Well, we'll get this together now and we'll get that together." We just walked away. You know, pathetic, really. <laughs> but you know, the, the, they were really good. And Doug Oldrich, I'm a big, uh, big friend of Doug's, and. Uh, but I've become really good friends with all of them, Red Beach and everybody. I mean, and they they had a great respect for me and for the White Snake legacy, which is nice. And Doug can kind of play both ways. He understands the bluesy side of it. Reb's a you know he's an out and out thrasher. You know, he's a, he's, a, he's a good man. But Doug sort of dug all the, uh, the the bluesier stuff, and he could, and he can also rock out a bit. Yeah. You know, so there was a nice contrast. And we he was I think he was quite instrumental in saying you know, to David maybe saying hey, give Bernie a call. You know and. Uh, it's been good, and we've done it every year since. So I hope, you know, maybe the, the end of this year in December, I'll probably do it, do it again somewhere with them. I hope so. Anyway, I shall probably be yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's talk about Shine then. Yeah. Their record came out last year, wasn't it? Yeah, last year. Um, notable for lots of reasons. It's a great record. Loads of tracks on it, but. David was on there uh, with the, the rework of, of Trouble and um, a, a young up-and-coming guitarist who might do quite well, but yeah. Joe Bonamassa yeah. as well. So talk a little bit about the record, about that. Dashed Americans. <laughs> Joe was instrumental in me doing that record, really. Um, you know, people say, oh, it's a comeback. And I said, well, if it's a comeback, you've got to be gone away somewhere. And I haven't been anywhere, really. But I wasn't going around, you know, at you know, my age at that time 
expecting a new record deal. But I got up and played with Joe. Joe was a, a big fan, and uh, we, we met each other about five years ago, maybe a bit more. And um, I played with him on a regular basis. Well, what I didn't realize or think about was at those gigs, there was representatives of his record company there who must have been reporting back in Holland. And then this, this quite old guy keeps getting up with Joe, but the people seem to love him, you know, and all that. <laughs> Luckily for me, one of the guys that the run, or the guy that runs the company, he says, well, what's his name? It's Bernie, somebody. And the guy said, I think I know who this is. <laughs> so he contacted me and said, uh, just, we'd like you to join the label. So because of that, I said to Joe, you know, he won't take any credit for it. He said, it's all down to me and all that, because he's that kind of guy. But uh, I said, well, I want you to play on it. And he said, just let me know when. And he came to Abbey Road on a day off. You know, that's the kind of guy he is. And I thought, well, at this stage, with my relationship with David, if I'm going to record something, let's go back into the into the well and find out something we wrote together very early. And uh, I said, would you sing it? You know, it wasn't any, like, call my lawyers or call my manager. He just said, well, of course. That was how easy it was. And he sings fantastic on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. yeah. We always, in the old days, I wanted to, to say, to do trouble a bit tougher, you know. And... Uh, we did, but it took us 30 years to do And here is that 2014 reworking of Whitesnake's Trouble from Bernie Marsden's new-ish album Shine, featuring David Coverdale.
Jean Beauvoir started early when he was recruited to be Gary U.S. Bonds' musical director at age just 14. In 1978, at 15, he left home and joined the New York punk scene where he got his first gig with the outrageous plasmatics fronted by Wendy O. Williams. He stayed for six years and after a stint with Steve Van Zandt, a.k.a. Little Steven of Bruce Springsteen's E Street Band, he released his solo album Drums Along the Mohawk in 1986. This spawned the hit Feel the Heat when it was included on the soundtrack to Sylvester Stallone's movie Cobra, and it was this exposure that shot him onto the music A-list. His subsequent musical ventures have included producing and writing for the Ramones, as well as dozens of other artists, plus a hit album Crown of Thorns with longtime collaborator Mickey Free, and it's this partnership which has just released a superb new album called American Trash. I started by asking him why a clean-cut boy from Chicago wanted to get mixed up with a bunch of punks from New York. It just felt right. I just said, this is you know, a, a, a way for me to be able to express myself, do what I want to do, be who I want to be, and just be as crazy as, <laughs> as I want. And Plasmatics was the perfect vehicle for that. And the scene on there was, um, it was great. I mean, black leather jackets, everybody was just, you know, it was really about self-expression and rebellion at the time. I think that's really what attracted me to the whole thing. And the music was just, you know, it was powerful. It was, um, wasn't melodic, like you say, um, like some of the things that I, you know, I've done, in, you know, after that. But I like it all. I, I, I kind of need all of it in my life. They're gonna put you away. It is I love, you know, that I like loud, <laughs> you know, and at the same time, I like melodic. So um, it was a great scene. Uh, it was a great time. And I think it was a, a great way to be introduced into the professional world of music and gave me a certain bass. And the bass parts were pretty hard, you know, as well, <laughs> believe it or not. <laughs> right. And obviously, I mean, it's the stage antics, which which people remember a lot of and, and I mean were they really that over the top I mean I guess the you know were Wendy's was she really that bad I mean even if it was was the the bad press must have helped I guess yeah well you know the it, it was over the top the band did all kinds of things I mean and funny things at the beginning when, when I first joined the band we were doing a lot of it ourselves so we were training the pyro guy on the roof of our loft um, we drive around every day to go find you know yeah used Cadillacs so that we could blow them up at the show <laughs> you know all the guitars that we chainsawed all the all the all the things that we had in the show we actually were really involved in doing this this is something that the band we hands-on went and got everything together for it and the show was over the top and i think that a lot of people came to the show because they didn't know what was going to happen next they didn't, you know they didn't know if the uh, an amplifier blowing up was going to singe part of my mohawk off which it did a couple of times or whether Wendy would start swinging that shotgun around, and even though they were blanks, she'd hit one of us every once in a while. <laughs> we'd end up with you know, rashes all over our bodies, or you know, or the light thrust falling down from the ceiling, or you know, the car blowing up with no real regulation. You know, so we used to have fire departments come to the shows every show so that they can try to see well, what logic do you guys have for blowing up this car? Do you know how far that hood is going to go? And 
we actually didn't. <laughs> so, were, you know, so things would just happen. Um, you know, curtains would go on fire. It was it was a dangerous show, to be honest with you. And uh, but at the same time, it was thrilling. It was really thrilling to be a part of that. It was like being in a movie. It's like a you know, it's like furious. Fast and Furious or something on stage, you know? Absolutely. So what's your best plasmatic story from back in the day then? Well, I guess, I don't know if it's the best story, but probably one of the most intense stories was when we all got arrested in Milwaukee. Right. Um, You know, pretty much just one day, as I had mentioned, a lot of the, you know, um, the fire departments would always come just to come check everything out. And they were, you know, and so every show was lined up with police cars and, and fire department. And one day, you know, actually, Wendy, I mean, they tried to arrest Wendy for simulated masturbation with a sledgehammer. <laughs> and our manager is like, I've never heard of such a charge. What is that exactly? Is that something that's actually legal? You know what I mean? And um, they tried to arrest her. And one of the police officers, you know, tried to touch her breast, you know, while, she, while we were backstage. She freaked out, and she slapped him. Next thing you know, the guy punches her, and it starts an all-out fight backstage. Where the police, and we all, I can remember, it was a night in Milwaukee, it was snowy, and they were beating us up, we had us on the floor, handcuffing us, and it took us to jail. Myself, Richie, the manager, and Wendy. And it turned out to be a big case in the States, you know, because it was harassment, really. But um, that was probably one of the most intense times with the plasmatics, where things really got serious. And the you know, anti-establishment start, you know, really got out of control, uh, yeah. wanting to put a stop to this, <laughs> what plasmatics were, were doing. And, you know, to be honest with you, we had a similar situation in the UK where the General London Council basically canceled our show because they wanted to put, I, I, don't know, I think it was like 50 feet between us and the audience because we were going <laughs> to blow up a car. Right. And they insisted on having these barricades. And so we didn't agree to it. So the show at Hammersmith got canceled, and that oh, caused right. quite a bit of press in the UK and around Europe, for that matter. I mean, all of that's very punk, very rock and roll. But the thing that probably really changed it for you was it was it feel the heat, the soundtrack. Did that really make you personally much more visible? Yeah, it did. You know, um, when I left the Plasmatics after a few years, I, I realized, you know, this is great. I'm having a great time. The band was kind of heading in a different direction, and I and you know, and I just said, it's time for me to do my own thing. And I, I always ultimately wanted to do that anyways. Um, I tried to get a deal, but I couldn't get one. I mean, nobody would sign me. Everybody would say, listen, if you want to blow up cars, we'll sign you. You know, but singing, we don't see that. So forget that. So in the end of the day, you know, I, I had some offers from some interesting people. Prince, who I didn't realize was a Plasmatics fan. You know, his management called me up and said, listen, you want to play with Prince? So, you know, um, he... He loves the band. He thinks you're great. And he wants to make you some kind of offer where he'll basically do a solo record with you. And at the same time, you'd play in his group. And I didn't really go for that because I kind of felt that that might put, you know, pigeonhole me in a place where that I wouldn't be able to get out of. Right. I really wanted to do my own thing. But then I ran into Stephen Van Zandt, who I guess just had a different way of putting it. He kind of told me, listen, come play with me. Nobody's going to sign you now. Bruce Springsteen couldn't, <laughs> couldn't be anything further away from the plasmatics. <laughs> I think that this might give you credibility that's missing, and people will actually see talent, which right. I see. Right. So why don't you come do this with me? Let's do an album together. You get to work with these great musicians and be a part of this great thing. And then you know, from there, then we'll just see if we can get you. 
So I did that for a while, um, I think about two, three years, you know, and everything was great. But I still had that urge to go do my own thing. And um, ultimately, I met a manager, you know, Gary Kerfurst, um, one of the first guys who were involved with Hendrix, and he managed the Ramones and, you know, Debbie Harry, Eurythmics, a lot of interesting talking heads. Two weeks later, he called me from England and said, um, come meet me here. I'm with Richard Branson, and he loved the demos, and he wants to sign you to his label Virgin. And then that was it. And then Feel the Heat. And that was my first solo effort, my first solo record, my first hit. That's when it kind of came together. I'm a huge Kiss fan, so I have to talk about Kiss. And there is a, there is a, um, I suppose a couple of connections. I'm assuming that the that the original Kiss connection came about because of the tour the Plasmatics did with them. Would that be right? No, actually, because the, the that tour that they did was right after I left the band. Right. So the funny thing is, around you know mid '80s, early '80s, when I was working with Stephen, you know, all of us lived in New York. And there were like a couple of clubs where everybody hung out, you know, and Paul used to go there. He says, hey, you're, you know, Jean from the Plasmatics. And he says, I'm Paul Stanley from Kiss. And he had no makeup on, of course. And I'm like, wow, this is cool, you know, because I was a, a huge Kiss fan back then at the beginning. That's kind of one of my inspirations for, you know, starting everything. And then we actually just started hanging out. He said, hey, you know, we hung out that night. We talked, blah, blah, blah. And, and then one day we're sitting in his house having a little Chinese food. <laughs> he pulls out a guitar and he says, let's try to write something. And then that was the first, I believe, Thrills in the Night from the first record. Kiss at the time, I don't want to talk too much about Kiss because this is about you, but um, Kiss at the time was, was in a real flux situation. Did you, as a Kiss fan, did you kind of think, I can I can really help here, I can really contribute something? Because this band, I think they were, at the time, they were kind of meandering a bit, weren't they? Well, you know, a, a lot of people say that. I mean, I never felt from Paul, to be honest with you, that there was that much meandering. And, you know, Paul's not the type of guy that's going to tell you, oh, John, I'm meandering. <laughs> <True>. <laughs> You know what I mean? So Paul was always a very positive guy and, and a really hardworking rock and roll guy. So, I mean, he just basically would just tell me what he's doing. He's saying, we're making a new record and I'm concentrating 
I'm going to be doing a lot of the production. You know, Gene's a little busy doing some other things, but he always just kept going. And, you know, later as time went on, I realized that, you know, they were going through that whole, you know, no makeup thing, which might have been an issue. But to me, it was just part of the course. It was just that time in their career. They wanted to try something different, which a lot of us do, you know, and he tried something different. And I guess in the end of the day, they decided makeup was the better route. (laughs) Even though we still did very well, because both records that I'm, you know, I was involved in, they're both, you know, platinum, you know, half double platinum records all over the world. So they still did well. I mean, it's not like they, you know, had a failure with either one of those records. Sure, yeah. But it was great to contribute. Yes, to answer your question, it was great to to be a, be a part of it. I always really enjoyed that, working with other artists and almost becoming a fifth member for a minute. Not so much with Kiss, because I didn't do that much with Kiss. But um, it, was, it was an honor to be able to contribute and to be involved, especially since the songs kind of became, you know, became singles and stuff so that's absolutely was yeah yeah they were now let's move on to the um to the here and now i mean your partnership with with mickey free goes a way back but was it crown of thorns was that the first major thing you guys managed to do together yes it was and that kind of broke here uh, as opposed to in the u.s didn't it yes a year and a half went by we're still making this record <laughs> to the point to be honest where one day you know jimmy takes me out in the car and tells me john i hate to tell you but grunge is here and, you know, I'm signing things for $50,000, you know, and they're playing out of tune and driving around in a van and they're selling millions of records. <laughs> so, you know, so I think your day of this, you know, even though I love the record and I love everything you're doing, I think I think we missed the boat. So, of course, that was a very depressing thing for us. And it was about to throw the whole thing away. I actually packed up and moved to Key West. Then I started getting calls from the UK, from Japan, from around the world. And they said, listen, you, you can't let this record go. We have to, we want to release it. And then I've got all these different offers for independent deals. So we did that. And somehow, you know, it just took off. And we ended up getting really good chart action over there. We ended up playing a lot in the UK. And it, it really kind of built something for us over there. I'm getting Fast forward then, uh, same partnership in a way, but we've got American Trash, which is Beauvoir Free, which is the new, I guess, band name, whatever you want to call it. I mean, it's uh, it's a brilliant record. Were you trying to be different from what had come before, or did you just go with the flow? Or how did it, I mean, any preconceived ideas of what you wanted to do with it? Well, for one thing, thanks, thank you really very much for this. You know, I'm, I'm like almost, I'm not going to say I'm shocked, but I, yeah, I'm pretty, I'm, Pleasantly surprised, <laughs> because we never know when we make these records, or if I make a record, what you know, what the reaction is going to be. You just right. never. So it's really like you know a lottery. But I'm really happy that we're getting this kind of reaction. But um, we took the same approach here. We said let's just go back and let's just be us and let's just do exactly what we did back then, and just see what what happens. He came over, came to Florida. We'd sit in a room. We'd play, you know, we'd play a riff or something. I'd hear it. Boom. It was a song. And we did that, you know, a, two weeks at a time. Then he'd, he'd leave. He'd go back to Arizona or L.A. And then we'd come back again. We'd do it. We probably did four or five times. And I worked in between, you know, with the production and all that stuff. 
we wanted it to have a good rock and roll feel. We knew we want, you know, we love riffs. We have certain rules that we just want to make sure that the melodies are as good as they can be. So we try our best to make that happen. You know what I mean? It sounds on that basis like it was a lot of fun to make. And, and the result of those records tends to be that they're an awful lot of fun to listen to, which is very much like a lot of the stuff from the 80s. And not that it's trapped in that. I mean, the whole feeling, which is fine by me. I think I'm all for some serious music. But, but when I put this on, it was just a fun record to listen to. Well, I'm, I'm glad. You know, that's, that was the whole idea. You know, And um, I think you're right about the 80s. The records back then, they were fun. They were just... They gave a feeling, and, and the fans kind of felt like they really could relate to what the bands or artists were saying, and they felt like they were part of it. And I think that's why now you see everybody wanting to go on these 80s cruises or these this, because they miss being a part of something. I mean, you've worked with so many people over the years. Are there any people or projects where you wished you'd done more, you know, where it stopped too soon, or that you'd like to revisit, uh, or even maybe ones or two that you've regretted? I wouldn't say I've regretted any, but um, to be, I'm not being diplomatic. That's honestly. I mean, some were difficult. There's no doubt about it. I mean, producing or writing with the Ramones is not an easy task. Right. You know? <laughs> it was like, you know, you got Joey over here that loves melodies and loves that. Johnny doesn't want to hear a piano or a string or play a minor chord. And then you've got you know, Dee Dee who's got another thing. You know, so it was very difficult at times to try to there was a psychological aspect of producing those records or working with those guys. But that was kind of the fun of it because you became, it's almost like you joined the family because when you're producing that record, you have to deal with the wives, the girlfriends, their, the guys' problems, you know, what's happening with them today. Anything that's related to them becomes a part of your job. Right. <laughs> Kiss, I would love to, you know, it would be fun to do more things with them and you never know. I might, you know. Yeah. I asked this question to uh, a chap called Russ Ballard, who I'm sure you know, because he's done similar in terms of working with people, working for himself, being part of a band. What's been the highlight, the pinnacle moment? Was it something for somebody else, something that you've done on your own, or does it not really matter? To be perfectly honest, I'd probably say the pinnacle for me was my solo career. I think Feel the Heat probably was, just because it was the the most extreme for me. You know, because it was, in the end of the day, everything that you else you did was leading up to that moment where you could stand on your own and do your own thing and it was, that was a record that I produced i wrote it by myself i played all the instruments on it you know it was my i mean everything and it was coupled to stallone's thing which at the time was such a you know i was a fan of stallone so it was such a, a place where you never you didn't believe you'd ever get to a thoroughly nice guy and very talented too. Beauvoir Free is playing in the UK in early September. Birmingham, definitely. London, I think. So I'll see you there if you're going. Here's my pick from the new album, American Trash, in the meantime. But it could have been any one from about six on the record, to be honest. It's so strong. This is Angel's Cry.
Blue Oyster Cult is a band name once heard and never forgotten, so it's unsurprising that over the past 40 years or so they've become part of the fabric of pop culture, especially in the US. Helped by classic anthems such as Godzilla, Burning For You and the unforgettable Don't Fear The Reaper, their songs have permeated all of our lives at some point or other. Following the death of long-standing keyboard player Alan Lanier in 2013, guitarist Eric Bloom and Donald Buck Dharma Rosa are the only remaining originals in the band, but that hasn't stopped them touring pretty much constantly since their heyday in the 70s and 80s, although their last original material was released in 2001. It was touch and go for a while, but I was finally graced with a sit-down alongside Eric Bloom recently at the Ramblin' Man Festival in the UK. I warn you in advance, as we started talking, the mighty Saxon took to the stage, so trying to take my mind off Motorcycle Man blasting away in the background, I started by asking him what, after all these years, was his favourite kind of gig to play. I don't know if I have a favourite. It really has nothing to do with the shows themselves. It has to do with the travel. And I talked to a lot of bands, all my mates and other bands, and it has to do with, you know, we would play for free, but just pay me for the travel. <laughs> because some of the travel is uh, is crazy. Yeah, right. You know, um, fly from New York to L.A., then get in a van and go for three and a half hours, play a show, and drive three and a half hours back, and then fly back to New York. You know, crazy shit like that. Well, the other main question that everybody would, would love to know is, is there any chance of a new record from Lois the Cult? There's always a chance. Okay. And, and, and I, I, I can't give a definitive answer. But I can say that our manager is talking to a label. Wow, fantastic. That's good news, that's great news. I'll go back to some of the crusty old questions then. Um, as far as I'm aware, I think Blue Oyster Cult, I think you were the first guys to use the umlaut on the name, and now everybody, lots and lots of other people have used it. Were you the first guys to use that, do you know? As far as I know. Although there must be a Swedish band that has used it before us. <laughs> Probably. But I mean the legend, I mean you've got Motorhead, you've got uh, Motley Crue, Spinal Tap. Yes. Of course Spinal Tap did not use it on a vowel. No, that's true, but then they got most things wrong. <laughs> on purpose. <laughs> yeah. But uh, that's a good legacy though. I agree, I think we were first. Blue Oyster Cult in the 70s and 80s was, was kind of part of the fabric of what people knew. I mean, you were so huge and there was, must have been so many um, high points, but is there anything for you that stands out as a moment where you thought, holy shit, this is, this is really amazing? Well, you know, we didn't make it overnight. So there was never any one moment that hits you over the head and said, holy shit, we're here, you know? But um, you gotta remember like um, Don and myself, you know, Buck, we played all through college and, and fraternity parties and bars and roadside bars and clubs and you know we didn't just you know fall off a truck and wind up in a stadium so it's it's um, it was a long time coming and when we first started you know quote unquote being professional um, we were living in a band house and we didn't have money to pay for the heat and and uh, it wasn't it wasn't an easy start. I'm not saying singing the blues, but I'm not you know we had a gradual start. You know our first record sold 300,000, which is nice, but but there was no gravy. You know we had to go out and work and be an opening act, and uh, you know it, it it was it was I think the way most bands make it. Very few bands make it on their first record. Uh, maybe the exception would be Boston. You know, and and uh, but even I'm sure that they didn't hit bang, you know, big because they opened for us, and it wasn't probably till the next year 
where they made, you could gather the fruit from that first record. You know, we, we were in a lot of rented cars, and we drove our own truck, and uh, many, many years. We didn't fly for probably the first three years. We drove rented cars and trucks, and we had like one crew guy, you know, who was just a friend of ours who helped us out. You know, it was a while before we really, uh, you know, got to the point where we didn't have to share rooms. You know, so uh, I'd say, uh, you know, when Reaper hit, you know, that was a, the big step. And that was obviously now. It's it's. I mean, it's everywhere. Everybody knows that song. So yeah. it's probably. But, but however, that was a, there was a gradual steps before that. It wasn't like that was a lightning bolt that took us to the top. Right. There was um, the first record sold three hundred thousand. The next record sold three hundred eighty thousand. The next record sold over four hundred thousand. It wasn't like it was um, all of a sudden we're in stadiums. You know, but that did take us to that step. So it may be a tired question, it probably is, but, but when you were recording Reaper and when you heard it back, did you think this is something very different? Well, we all thought it was different. Because, you know, Buck wrote, Buck wrote that song himself and he brought it in finished. Uh, so it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a band project. He brought that song in as, as you hear it, it's basically the way it is, the way he brought it in. And, and of course, it's very different from the rest of our material. Um, so when people think of BOC as a metal band, you know, that's the antithesis of a metal song. Sort of like when Kiss, you know, when Peter Chris brought in Beth, you know, it's very different than the rest of Kiss's material. So, um, yet it was a hit for them. So, um, it all worked. Yeah. And I think, I mean, now obviously it's part of it's part of who you are. When, when that song is coming up in the set list, does it ever get to the point where you think, oh, it's this one again, or do you think, great, it's this one again? No, we play it every night. Um, it's it's expected. I mean, I mean, I will pay $150 to go see the Who play, because and they better damn well play Bob O'Reilly, you know, you know, and and right. I expect it. And I appreciate it if they play some deep tracks because I'm a Who fan. But I want, you know, I want to hear the hits. You mentioned Kiss and, and Kiss and Blue Oyster Cult. I'm a huge Kiss fan, and yeah. Kiss and Blue Oyster Cult. Are... Oh, I'm sorry for you. <laughs> well, it kind of answers the question because yeah. there's I, I I don't know a huge amount of this, but you you played with them, you played uh, before them, you played after them. Is there any history there with the band? Do you have any appreciation oh, with them? Tons of history. 
Kiss's first show was opening for us. Right. Yeah, 1973. Overall, has it been a good experience or not so much? Well, you know, I'm not going to air dirty laundry on a radio show. Okay. Yeah, ask Gene those questions. Oh, I'll try, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. If, uh, if you can get through his bodyguards. Yeah, it's not so easy now. Uh, and whatever's being sold that particular week, yeah. Um, when I was a kid, I saved up a huge amount of money at the time to buy a, a video cassette called Black and Blue, which was the Black Sabbath Blue Oyster Cult, which I played to death. The thing wore out in the end. And I only later found out that that tour was perhaps had one or two problems. What are your memories of it? Uh, plenty. <laughs> Any good ones? <laughs> well, there was some difficulty. Um, um, first of all, the video um, has been squashed uh, for, um, for um, commercial release. Be short. The vi well, I know in America it's not allowed to be sold. Oh, okay. I don't know about over here. Oh, okay. Um, the, you know, I'm not sure about the factual but, uh, story, but what's gotten back to me right. is the Black Sabbath guys don't want it released. Okay. That's all I know. Okay. Um, I don't know about Ronnie Dio. Uh, may he rest in peace. He's a wonderful guy. But the uh, the British side of of the Black and Blue band uh, was not happy with us, and we did not uh, socialize. Okay. I think it had to do with the management at the time. Oh, okay. But that was a 1981 story. Okay. You know, maybe things are better now. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Okay. A lot of people asked, um, obviously there was the reunion in 2012 when the box set came out. Uh, has anybody had any thoughts about doing something maybe with uh, regards to Alan, Alan's passing and, and a tribute to that? Well, we have plans to do a... Uh, a tribute to Alan in a club in New York, but um, we had that hurricane, you know, and then, you know, Alan was doing the reunion with us, and we did do it a week later with him. Uh, then he passed away six, seven months later, and then uh, we're trying to organize something, you know, um, just for all you uh, listeners out there. He had, he had health trouble, that's why he could not tour with us. Uh, basically, he had COPD, which is uh, from smoking. And um, please don't smoke. <laughs> uh, he had lung trouble, right. and um, uh, you know, like emphysema. Right. And uh, so we plan to do something with a charity involved in that, you know. And we still hope to do it. Okay. There you go. Short and sweet, but a pleasure nonetheless. And with no new material to play from the band, I'll just pick a personal favourite, which highlights the wonderful keyboard contribution of the late Alan Lanier. From the On Your Feet, On Your Knees live album released in early 1975 and culled from my personal vinyl collection, this is Cities on Flame.
Okay, that's about it for the chat, although I have one more track to play for you. Before that, just a reminder that you can sign up to our email list by heading for classicrockpodcast.com, where you'll also find details of all the shows alongside the bands and albums we've featured. You can join the chat on our Facebook page or Twitter feed, both of which can also be linked from the main website. A reminder too that we're running a programme with Patreon, which means you can sign up to be a patron of the Classic Rock and Metal podcast by giving us as little as a dollar or 70-odd pence for each show that we release, and in return you can win loads of goodies blanked from the very people we've included on those shows. So if you're feeling generous, head for either patreon.com slash rockpodcast or follow the link from our main website and join the happy throngs chipping in to help make it happen each month. So your last blast from us goes back almost 35 years to the day if you're listening to this episode as soon as it's published as it's a live track from the first Monsters of Rock Festival at Castle Donington in the UK way back in August 1980. We're playing it because there's a rule in the office that you can't talk about the Scorpions without playing some Scorpions so you can blame Bernie Marsden for this. Coming up is another piece of meat and until we meet again, be good. (laughs) 